you know, Ruth's Chris has received more money than many hospitals have. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, JP and I are joined remotely by Mohammed Biden. Mo Biden is a close friend, and he's a professor of neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, the storied Mayo Clinic. And this is another episode in our uh, series on coronavirus or COVID-19. Uh, I've known Mo for many years, and, uh, and I, I love him for his honesty and uh, what he's contributed to our field in terms of the big data and looking at the big picture and not just doing operations or seeing patients. And he's, he's really an expert in that. And today we wanted to focus on a couple things about uh, what's in the news now with the Mayo Clinic. And, and I'm just going to make a disclaimer here because it's very easy to, to take our guests and say, well, this guest said this and that guest said that. We've already, I think, given due diligence to the concept that coronavirus and this pandemic is changing uh, this world forever and that the health uh, implications, the, the deaths, the sickness, the disease burden is tremendous. And nobody in any way, shape or form on this podcast is trying to minimize any of that. But today we want to focus on some of the other elements that may be coming to people's minds as we emerge from the pandemic. So Mo, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Great, thanks. So let me just kick it off by by saying that uh, you know I have a lot of respect for what, what Mayo Clinic's doing because I've been seeing it only in the news, and you live there. But this whole discussion about the Mayo Clinic uh, dealing with the economic uh, impact of what's happening with coronavirus help our listeners understand what exactly is the genesis and nature of this, and the scope and and implications. Right. So a couple of things. Um, first. You know, coronavirus has impacted the whole country, but variably. New York is a hotspot. Uh, Michigan is a hotspot. There's other areas that are significant hotspots. In Minnesota, there was a shelter-in-place uh, order. There was social distancing that occurred earlier than in other states. And so we've been fortunate while we've seen, you know, far too many cases, we've been fortunate to not have had some of the issues that have occurred in uh, other states. Um, and hopefully that remains the case. I would say a couple of things have occurred. One, uh, Mayo's response has been sort of threefold. One on the testing side, uh, Mayo has a large reference laboratory called Mayo Clinic Laboratories, and that laboratory has been very engaged in testing um, in uh, the various states that uh, Mayo has uh, operates in, but also nationally. And so that laboratory has advanced a number of different tests. The second area is on the treatment side uh, nationally where um, uh, Mike Joyner, who's uh, one of our uh, physicians at Mayo, leads the national FDA trial in uh, plasma uh, uh, treatment for, um, for uh, coronavirus. And so that's the second area. The third area is obviously locally 
where uh, coronavirus patients are treated and managed, we responded as a hospital like most other hospitals did. We said no elective surgeries. We said, um, uh, you know, our leadership said, uh, you uh, uh, need to really close down much of what we do so that we can focus on having capacity and PPE to take care of uh, patients with coronavirus. Now, the irony is most people, I think, in the world would assume, okay, you're a hospital, you're not going to treat the patients that you normally treat, but you are treating these other patients. So, you know, it should all, you should just continue functioning as a hospital. Um, and, and that's not the case. And Mayo has tried to say nationally and to warn our national leaders so that they're not surprised by this, that that's not the case. And so hospitals um, have seen significant financial fallout from uh, what's occurred, from the loss of uh, elective procedures, the loss of um, uh, clinic settings, and from the uh, preparations for coronavirus. And so, you know, I think the leader, and I don't, you know, speak for the leadership of Mayo by any means, but I do think that the message that the leadership of Mayo has tried to put out there has been really important for hospitals and healthcare workers, which is to say there have to be, just like there have to be federal resources uh, directed towards unemployment, uh, police safety, fire safety, um, uh, there were resources directed towards banks, small businesses. You have to think about resources towards hospitals because the revenue losses are so significant that there might be hospitals that don't emerge uh, from this crisis, which may seem counterintuitive to people because it's a healthcare crisis. And you have to remember during the banking crisis in 2008, um, the bailout of $700 billion was directed at the banks. Um, the Federal Reserve made another $5 trillion available to the banks. Funny enough, none of that um, was directed at homeowners. It was directed right at the banks because it was a it was a bank emergency and a financial emergency. And we were worried about the banking system crashing. And so I, I, I do personally worry as I look across the spectrum of hospitals in the nation of what's going to happen to our healthcare system. And without significant supports, the states don't have the capacity. So it has to be the federal government without significant support from the federal government, our healthcare system will emerge a lot weaker and um, oddly enough, put us at greater risk of a future healthcare issue uh, than, you know, it was a year ago. So Dr. Biden, you, you touched there on how it may be counterintuitive to think that after a healthcare crisis, our hospitals and healthcare system might be left uh, with less revenue through that crisis. Some of our listeners are younger students in college who may be aspiring to medical school or non-medical professionals um, who tune in because they have a family, um, family member or friend within neurosurgery. Can you kind of walk those listeners through how even during a healthcare crisis like this, when the average listener might think, oh, business is booming in the hospital, there's more patients than ever, how revenues might actually be lower, in fact? Well, right. And, and a lot of that is related to what hospitals have done, which is prudent and wise to prepare uh, for this, uh, the coronavirus uh, surges. And so what they've done is they've put off 
uh, elective procedures. They've put off uh, elective uh, surgeries. And that's where a lot of the revenue that goes to hospitals derives from. And so what that's resulted in is um, obviously prolonged hospitalizations for the patients who need it, but significant losses in revenue for hospitals across the country. Um, and what that means is you're seeing healthcare workers furloughed. I mean, you think about it, there's a need for healthcare workers throughout the country, even without a healthcare crisis like this. We were talking about shortages of doctors and nurses. And now in the middle of a healthcare crisis, you're seeing physicians, nurses, um, uh, phlebotomists, staff being furloughed. And the main driver of that is that the things that hospitals normally depend on to drive their revenue, they have chosen to shut down in order to be um, uh, prudent citizens and to prepare for the coronavirus surges. Uh, and the coronavirus surges don't come close to replacing that revenue for hospitals. And so, you know, you're, you're sort of in a situation, it's almost like you're fighting a war and you're furloughing your soldiers and you're telling your soldiers, we can't have you on the front. We need you on the front lines, but we can't afford to pay you to put you on the front lines. We don't have a national healthcare system in the United States. We have independent hospitals throughout the country. And, um, but this is something that's, emerging as a significant crisis. And, you know, my guess is there does need to be specific and targeted federal help to hospitals to, um, uh, to help offset the situation. So Mo, you know, that's, that's like the big picture and very abstract, but I, I just want to highlight for our listeners what, what we're really talking about here. I was reading uh, last week in the Star Tribune. So, to give some concept of scope, uh, you guys are located in Rochester, Minnesota. You guys are the biggest employer in the state. You have 40,000 employees and 70,000 when you include uh, Scottsdale, Arizona and Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, Florida, JP's hometown. And 70,000 employees across the board, reductions, furloughs, uh, something like 10 or 15 percent reduction uh, in, in, uh, in salaries. The CEOs are taking the lead on this, it sounds like, and taking a bigger pay cut, even bigger than that. I, I heard like 20, 25 percent or something like that. I mean, tell us about the impact of this. I mean, I, I don't know that everybody's really appreciating how big this is for the state of Minnesota and for one of the storied American healthcare institutions. Yeah, it's those, you know, the decisions that were made by leadership were made uh, very wisely, I think, because they saw... Um, what was happening. And they saw that if we're going to be prepared for the future as a hospital system, and if, um, uh, if we're going to be prepared for this current pandemic, we need to make changes now to uh, offset what are significant losses. And so those decisions were hard. They were not easy. I wasn't a part of those decisions, um, but leadership made them. And I think they made the right calls it is unfortunate because you do have um, significant, um, uh, you know, significant uh, changes to individual people's lives. People going on furlough, people, um, uh, you know, people uh, at risk of uh, or, or scared about what the future may hold. Um, I do know that you know the hospital's obviously committed to um, turning the corner. It, it's significant. I mean, anytime you look at it, and I was reading about other hospitals, you know, in Michigan and elsewhere throughout the country, you know, there's no easy way 
um, for hospitals to emerge from this. And so these changes, I think, had to happen. They had to come early. Um, I think Mayo, to its credit, was upfront and public about them and said, you know, this is the crisis that, that we're in and these are the steps that we're going to take. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, resources have to be invested. And so investments had to be made in getting more PPE. Uh, significant investments had to be made in ramping up testing uh, and the ability. And it, it's uh, it's a significant amount of testing that can be done by the day by Mayo Clinic Laboratories now. In fact, you know, the governor of Minnesota um, thanked uh, Mayo's reference laboratory for its help because it looks like the state of Minnesota will be able to, part of the opening up of the state of Minnesota will be based on what um, the reference laboratory has been able to provide in terms of support and assistance. And that doesn't come cheap. You have to redirect. So not only are you seeing losses in revenues, but now you have to redirect resources to that. Uh, to testing and then obviously to uh, treatment with with some of the national trials that are being run out of here. And so all of all of that is significant. It's a big economic impact to the state of Minnesota. Um, but also when you look at every hospital in the country um, doing things like this, which is what's been happening across the country, you, you know, I think I was reading one in 10 jobs are either directly or indirectly linked to healthcare. And so you've got, you know, unemployment approaching Great Depression levels. Um, you've got millions of people on the unemployment rolls. Um, you've, you know, you've got some businesses that just won't survive. Um, and, you know, I think the challenge, if you're a hospital, is you can't just shut the door. You know, it's not like a retail store where you can shut the door, furlough the employees, try to work out something, you know, a new arrangement with your landlord and just hope to reopen in six months. As a hospital, you have to somehow do this while keeping the doors open, while preparing for COVID surges, and um, while daily treating patients who have to be treated. And so all of those are things that challenge the healthcare economic structure uh, that's been uh, built uh, in this country. And I don't, I don't know that there's been a greater crisis for healthcare um, in this country than what's happening now. Uh, and so we just, you know, we, I think hospitals often, banks are used to going to Washington and uh, asking for things. Um, hospitals are not as well organized, obviously not as, uh, not as capable uh, in terms of ability in DC. Uh, but I do think it's a story that has to be told. And, um, you know, we as doctors and you know, uh, hospitals have the same obligation, but to tell that story and to say, you know, look, this is not the same as a small business where, um, you know, we can just open up in a few months and just help us get through the next few months. This is a very different crisis that's happening that may have long-term ramifications. You know, in, in thinking about that transition back to quote unquote normalcy, which, uh, from the hospital standpoint and from a surgical standpoint, would really uh, focus on the resumption of elective cases. Um, one of the more interesting angles within general media, as I keep reading the news lately, and different states talk about reopening their businesses, people are starting to discuss, well, even if you open restaurants, if you open movie theaters, will the customers come back? Or will there, will there still be general fear or anxiety within the population that keeps people at home and keeps them from going back to these businesses as they reopen? 
Um, Dr. Bynum, how do you project once quote-unquote elective cases are resumed both at your institution and different hospitals around the country, perhaps in more effective cities, do you think the patients will be comfortable to come back into a hospital after a crisis like this for a surgery that was previously deemed elective and previously, you know, the patient and physician were comfortable delaying until after this crisis? Yeah, no, I, I think, A, it'll be up to us to, and we've already started working on this, but to have the um, protocols that ensure patient safety uh, upon return, because we want to be able to deliver care safely and efficiently. But B, I do think there's significant pent up demand. You know, I see it every day uh, when I mm-hmm. talk to patients, whether it's through uh, video visits or phone visits. And um, I, I know from my colleagues throughout the country, there is a lot of pent up demand because there are a lot of uh, surgeries and procedures that should be happening that are being put off. And so um, that, you know, those we, we do need to, those need to be transitioned back into the system. And some of these, we think of them as elective, but they have a significant and debilitating impact on a patient's life. And so um, if you're uh, somebody who uh, has a foot drop, if you're somebody who um, has uh, myelopathy, if you're somebody who, I mean, it, can that wait a few days? Sure, it can. Um, but is that something that eventually will need to be treated? Yes. And I, I do think that patients feel um, a similar frustration to us, which is they want these things treated. We want to treat them. But because of the current environment, we have to wait. I do think once things start to safely reopen, um, then there, there will be significant pent-up demand that has to be addressed. Mo, you, you know, Mayo Clinic is in Rochester, Minnesota, which I've been to a couple times. Pretty rural place, right? And um, I, I want to think that a lot of your patients are sort of going through a destination healthcare type of experience, right? They they come from pretty long distances to come see people like you, right? For good reason. Do you find that uh, one of the concerns at Mayo, maybe you were more proactive as an institution, is because of the concern that there will forever be a proportion of people who are very reluctant to get on an airplane to, you know, to fly out, especially if they're sick or immunocompromised or debilitated or have medical problems, which I imagine most of the patients do, right, because they're coming to see you. Do you think that that is, is, uh, is a bigger concern for your institution? It's, you know, I think it's a concern for any tertiary or quaternary uh, referral center. And there's been, you know, a lot of studies on this and and you're in the same position, um, you know, in Miami as a major tertiary center, there's been a lot of studies on this that for highly complex conditions, um, traveling for care results in better outcomes. And that's because now that's not for all conditions. That's for the complex conditions. That's because, um, you have specialized teams that deal with these issues every day, uh, much like you do in Miami and much like we have uh, here at Mayo. So my guess is when, when, when this occurs, when things start to open up again, um, A, wide-scale national testing um, has to be more of a reality. B, I don't think things open up to look exactly like they did before. So the airplanes, you know, as 
as the economic times were going very well, we saw the seats get smaller and smaller and smaller and the space get less and less <clears throat> so that you really had no room to even maneuver as soon as you sat down. Hmm. There do have to be federal regulations around um, what that looks like. And if in the absence of federal regulations, then I think companies just need to be good corporate citizens and need to say, okay, we're not going to put as many of you as humanly possible packed in as tightly as possible um, onto a plane and, and load you on and get you, you know, to your destination. We're going to have to have uh, rules around social distancing, even on public transit, on airplanes, um, when you come into hospital waiting rooms, uh, when you uh, go into um, uh, retail stores. And so I think people envision that opening up is going to look exactly the same. But my guess is, as things open up, it's going to have to look very different. And with wide scale testing, when you look at the countries that handled this well, South Korea, Taiwan, um, those are places that tested very aggressively. Those are places that did contact tracing very aggressively. And then um, those are places that uh, tried to isolate uh, those cases from the general population as best as possible. And so my guess is even as things open up, there will be forms of social distancing that have to exist even in airports, even on airplanes. Um, and there, there has to be much more widespread testing so that you can be more assured as you're going out and about your business that, um, you know, you're just less likely to, um, uh, less likely to be in an unsafe environment than you were at the beginning of this pandemic. So there's frequently almost a taboo against talking about the financial aspect to healthcare. I think it's one of those things that particularly in America, people like to think shouldn't cost any money because it's, it's healthcare, it's wellness, and people should have access to it. And so they don't like to think about the fact that these things cost money and hospitals are businesses that need to stay open to deliver that care. So I think it's important that you're advancing this conversation, Dr. Biden, not just about the sustainability of re responding to the current conditions with the coronavirus pandemic, but looking forward to how hospitals will transition out of this crisis mode and making sure that they aren't effectively penalized for doing the socially responsible thing during it. So right now, while you have this audience, again, ranging from college students to practicing professors of neurosurgery, how can our listeners help you further advance this message and uh, make sure that it's heard in the right places? So th thank you for that. Um, healthcare is not only employs a significant number of people in this country, in many states, um, hospitals are the largest employers, many states, um, as you look across. And so healthcare not only employs a significant number of people, but when you look at our economy as a country, um, depending on the estimates that you read, 20% of our economy may be related to healthcare. Um, we're fortunate to be leaders in healthcare and healthcare advancement internationally um, as the United States. And we're fortunate to have the healthcare system that we do have, although there are major gaps in that system 
for uninsured, underinsured, pre-existing conditions that have to be closed. And we need to advocate that those be closed. But even if you look at hospital systems and healthcare systems in nationalized frameworks, it's not like those cost nothing. Um, the system in the United Kingdom um, has been on the verge of bankruptcy several times and has had to have significant uh, national bailouts. Uh, the other nationalized systems that we know about provide a form of rationing of care that in the United States, as a population, um, people may not be as amenable to and may not even realize that that's a possibility. And we've all seen it, you know, when we see people from one of those systems, that there is significant rationing of care that occurs in nationalized healthcare systems to try to control costs. Um, it's important for us as doctors, our top priority is taking care of patients. It is important that we view healthcare as an ecosystem that's as fundamental to the United States, to the American economy, as the banking system and as the financial system. It's now a large enough um, part of our economy as a country, and uh, it's important enough to what we do as a country, to our advancements, and to our ability to treat what is an aging population in the United States. So I, I think this discussion, you know, for myself, I know for, uh, for Mike, you know, we both love surgery. We love what we do. We love to operate. We love being neurosurgeons who can deliver care to our patients and help make them better. Um, if we don't pay attention to what's happening in the overall broader ecosystem, then our ability to deliver care to our patients is going to be threatened and jeopardized. Um, and so it's an important conversation to have. Uh, it's uh, important to, you know, I think a lot of other groups are more organized than we are. And uh, I think a lot of other groups are more willing to uh, call their local congressmen, to uh, call their local um, senators, their local representatives. I was very surprised, very surprised. Um, during the second half of this bill, um, uh, this uh, bailout that just occurred, uh, to see that there was resistance among significant members of the Senate and the United States House of Representatives on providing money to hospitals. And that, to me, is a failure on us uh, to speak to our local representatives and our local senators um, the resistance um, was just surprising to me because, you know, Ruth's Chris has received more money than many hospitals have, um, you know, during uh, this time. And so it, it's just unacceptable to me that, you know, we would be in this position. I think we'd be worse off as a country if we don't try to um, advocate better uh, for our ability to uh, sustain um, our uh, places of work. And so I, I would just hope for people who are listening, I think it's important to advocate and uh, to be a part of advocacy efforts and to speak openly and to say, just like you're supporting the local steakhouse, don't forget about the local hospital that's going to help keep you alive, that's going to do its best to um, help sustain the community. Uh, but don't forget that just like you need a steakhouse when this is over, you also need a hospital. And so I think it's up to us to make that argument. 
Well, great, Mo. I agree 100% with everything you've said today. Um, it's it's a very complex and fluid situation, and uh, we have to have you back on the podcast to talk about some of your passions, like the Quality Outcomes Database and all of the wonderful work you're doing in that arena. But I, I do want to thank you on behalf of the neurosurgery community for getting this message out there and uh, and be safe in these strange times. Thanks very much for having me, Mike, and talk to you again soon.